Okay, so welcome everyone to Drisha's Winter's Month program. And this is a, a two-part class on eating and community, creation and demarcation. In this class, we will explore the intersection between two major topics of Jewish law and culture, food and community, very important, from the sectarians and rabbis of all to contemporary Hasidic groups, Jews have identified the social elements of eating as ways of creating and demarcating communities. Through a variety of Jewish texts and practices, we will see how the questions of whom to break bread with and whom not is a key portal to understanding how different Jewish communities conceptualize their identities and missions. It's my pleasure to introduce Rabbi Dr. Yosef Bronstein. Rabbi Bronstein received his rabbinic ordination from Reitz and a PhD in Talmudic studies from the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies with a focus on Midrash Halakha. He currently teaches Jewish philosophy and Halakha at Michlelet Mevaseret Yerushalayim and online for Yeshiva University's uh, Isaac Breyer College. His books, Engaging the Essence, The Philosophy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe and Reshimot Shirim Shelmaran Harav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik Al Masechet Kiddushin are God willing forthcoming. And with that, I'll, I'll turn this to you, uh, Joseph. Yosef. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Evie. I really, I really appreciate the introduction. I really appreciate the, co the, the coordination. And I just wanted to start by saying how how privileged privilege I am to be able to partake in this in this in this winter in this winter's man of Drisha. Um, I've benefited a lot from Drisha as a participant, as a student, from from listening to lectures online. And it's really an honor for me be, for me to be able to participate in this way, to be able to be able to to lead a study session and learn together. And also how privileged I am to be able to learn with currently 19, 19, 19 boxes, 19 people who are taking time out of a weekday afternoon to be able to study Torah together. So, so thank you for that. Um, an, hour, an hour and a half is a long time for a, for a lecture. So definitely feel, please feel free to, to chime in, either to, to unmute yourself and just, and just talk or, 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 or type in your questions in, in the chat box for either Evie, for either Evie or myself. And at some point, toward, um, after a couple of minutes, I do hope to break break into breakout rooms for a little bit of chavrusa time to be able to get a little bit a little bit of the base matters feel. Um, great. So the the Drisha Wintersman is focusing on food and eating, and it really covers a wide variety of topics. If you're if if you're signed up for the entirety of the of the Wintersman, you're going to be hearing shiurim and lectures and studying issues of kashrut of brachot. Of, um, of, of scarcity, of food production, of, of different ethical issues that then involve food. Um, and I, and hopefully in this, these two, this two parts, this two part, this two part series, we're gonna be focusing on a different element, that's social element, element of eating. As we all know, um, eating is something which ideally is not done alone. It's something which ideally is done, done in community, especially in Jewish context, as, as we'll see. And that's a very important part of eating. And Jewish sources and Jewish rituals and Jewish communities have given a lot of importance to that element, whom you, whom you break bread with and, 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 and whom you don't. Um, and by, by means of introduction, I'm, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna share, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, 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 I'm gonna share, I'm, I'm gonna share a screen so you can look at, so you, so you can see the, so you can see the source sheet in a second. I first started thinking about this topic in a little bit of a circuitous way. Uh, in 2018, I saw on the news that England was appointing its first ever minister of loneliness. 
Um, were, are you guys familiar with this? Have you, did you see this in the news? 2018, um, you could Google it. it was, I saw it in the New York Times, and then I thought it was like an onion type of article. It was, it was a, I really thought it was a, a little bit, it was a little, it was a little bit of humor, humorous satire. I Googled it further, the BBC was covering it. England currently has a minister of loneliness. What does that mean? That means that the NIH, the, 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 NIH, the, the national, no, the NHS, National Health, Health System in, in, in England, and different governmental bodies identified loneliness as a growing epidemic in England, particularly among two populations, among the elderly and among the post-college single community. And they saw through their research, they saw that loneliness was comorbid with all sorts of things that are horrible for society, such as, such as physical health issues, such as mental health issues, such as quality of life issues, such as happiness. And they appointed a minister to try to create programming to try to battle this epidemic the way they battle other forms of epidemics. Um, I thought it was fascinating. I did some more Googling um, and I saw that, that this, is not, this is not exactly from a governmental body, but adjacent to it, there are some, there are some organizations in England that are trying to foster community through eating together. Um, and this is why I'm gonna, I'm gonna share my screen. Um, if you know, hopefully you could see it. Trisha Wintersman, food and community, number one. The Yachad and the Chabura, we'll see what that means in a, in a, in a couple of minutes. Um, what the first source what you have in front of you, sorry, the picture on the bottom is, is Member of Parliament Tracy Crouch. She was England's first ever Minister of Loneliness. You Google her, she did, she did some fascinating things based on some fascinating research. She was only Minister of Loneliness for a couple, I think for six months, and then she Resigned from her position due to due to certain issues, and somebody else, somebody else was, and somebody else was appointed. Now, now, now I think they're on their third minister of loneliness. Um, so adjacent to the fact that there was a minister, minister of loneliness, um, adjacent to the fact that, that the government was researching this and trying to combat it, there was research being done by Oxford University. So this is an article from the Oxford University website from their from their news organization about research about loneliness and how to combat it. So let's read it together. New research from the University of Oxford has revealed that the more often people eat with others, the more likely they are to feel happy and satisfied with their lives. Using data from a national survey by the Big Lunch, anybody here ever hear of the Big Lunch organization? I, I did not either, so I Googled it. The Big Lunch organization is, a, is part of a, uh, of, a, of a charity community organization called the Eden Project and based in London, um, which, and, which basically is trying to create a Thanksgiving-like atmosphere in England. England doesn't have a Thanksgiving where families are sort of like naturally come together to eat together. So at some day in July, they want to get all commun communities and families to come together to eat. I think the last big lunch they had, which, which, which was prior to, to COVID, they had, I think, 3 million people throughout England that signed up to make sure to eat with other people on a certain day in July. So together with the big lunch organization, the researchers looked at the link between social eating and an individual's happiness, the number of friends they have, their connection to their community, and their overall satisfaction in life. The results suggest that communal eating increases social bonding and feeling of well-being. It enhances one's sense of contentedness and embedding within the community. 
And if you want, you, you, you can follow the link over here. And there is a link in the, uh, in the news article to the actual study that was published by Oxford, by Oxford University to see the actual numbers. If you're more, if, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you have this, if you have the, the um, statistical scientific mind to, to understand such things, I, pers I personally do not, um, but they have the actual research there that again, it's correlated. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, a, it's a correlative argument. It's not a causative argument. There's no way to prove causation. But they really think that people eating together and feeling and just breaking bread together creates a sense of community, and that is overall positive for people's well-being and, men and, 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 and mental state. Um, I think that this year in particular, I think we could all appreciate that. Um, I think that you know, so many of us have been having have been have, have had health challenges. I myself, I myself had had had, had Corona, had corona some, some, some months ago. Um, thank God, I'm feeling fine now. But one of the things, one of the major elements that's missing from our, from our lives, I know personally from my life right now, is just the ability to eat together with other people outside those people that are living with us within, within our households. Um, and when I, when I saw this, when I saw this article several years ago, I immediately started thinking about Jewish sources. I was able to look at some of the Jewish sources and traditions and rituals that we have in a slightly different light because because again, I mean, what you can go through Jewish life, go through Jewish sources, but once you see an article, once you see that you know, modern psychology, modern social sciences proves a certain thing, you go back and you see how wise some of this, the sages were, how wide the Bible is, how much of this element of social eating is integrated into Jewish life and ritual. Um, this, is gonna be, this is gonna be the first time I'm gonna ask people to, ask people to participate. Where do you think, where do you find this idea of social eating in Jewish life, ritual, and sources. Any any takers? Any any suggestions? There's Mishloch Manot in making Good. sure that everyone can eat. Good Mishloch Manot, and again, the whole and we're, I, I, I actually debated putting a source of Mishloch Manot on the source sheets um, because the purpose of Mishloch Manot, according to most of the commentators, is to create social bonding. Haman refers to the Jews as a dispersed and disparate nation. And therefore, the, the, the tikkun, the way to fix that, what we celebrate in Purim is creation of unity. And the best way to do that is by sending food packages to each other and having large meals. Thank you. And we'll see that it's in, particularly food in any moment, not through any other form of gift. And any other times where we see the act of socially eating together um, is given importance in Judaism. Korban Pesach? Korban Pesach, exactly. Korban Pesach. Again, over here, it's even one step further. It's tied in with the height of ritual, with the height of ritual. Seder night, the carbon Pesach, which was offered, which was eaten Seder night, is the night when we when we when we retell our identity, we retell our founding story, and we tell our children, we tell our families, we tell ourselves and each other about why we exist as a nation, what our purpose is, why God redeemed us from Egypt, how God redeemed us from Egypt, and it's particularly that night which halakha demands we eat in a chabura, we eat in a community. And we'll see that word chabura becoming important as we go on. Any, any other times where, where this notion of eating together is raised on a pedestal in halakha in Judaism? This is kind of an opposite example, but I know there's a lot of laws in Kashrut about like not doing things uh, so that you don't come to be friends with um, people who are not Jewish. Good, exactly, exactly. And that's going to be our, our starting point for the flip side of the conversation, that because the sages, because Chazal understood the, the importance, important, understood the bonds that are created when people eat together, they, they were therefore very wary of eating with the wrong people. 
um, from their perspective, who the, from, from eating with the wrong people. And that's a flip side of the same argument, um, recognizing the power of breaking bread together. Good. Um, good, I think we have a couple of examples. I think the whole concept of zimun, when three people eat together, they're, they, they're supposed to bench, supposed to say pirkat zone, which I think is one of the, one of the top, was an earlier topic in, in, this, after, in, in this afternoon slot um, last week. The fact that when three people eat together, they don't just bench and say pirkat zone, thank God, separately. They have to do it together as a community. And if you go through the halachot of the zimun, it, what emerges is that halakha treats them as a single unit, doesn't treat them as three separate people that happen to be eating together, that happen to be saying pirkat zone together. Um, good, and and we'll and we'll and we'll and we'll see more examples as we'll see more examples as as we go on. Um, frequently, this notion, the power of eating together to bring people together to create community, is often associated with one rabbinic source, so associated with several rabbinic sources, but one primary source which appears at the end of Tractate Sanhedrin. Um, so I'm going to share a screen again, so we could uh, so, we, so we could all so we could all see it together. There's Ms. Tracy Crouch. Sanhedrin Daf Kuf Gimel, source number two. Um, the source is not really about eating together. We'll see what it's about in a second, but the way it's used in subsequent Jewish literature is, a, is, high, is about highlighting the power of eating together to create community. Well, we will read it in, in English. If anyone wants to follow, follow along in the original Aramaic and Hebrew, please feel free. Rabbi Yochanan says, in the name of Rabbi Yossi ben Kesma, great is eating. Godal legima. Legima literally means swallowing. Swallowing, eating is amazing. It's great. As it distance two clans from the Jewish people. As it is stated, an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the assembly of the Lord because they met you not with bread and with water. What's the story? that the Ammon and Moab are cousins of the Jewish people in the, in, in, in the biblical story. They, they, are, they come from Lot and Lot's daughters. Um, Lot is Abraham's nephew, and therefore the, the Ammonites and the Moabites, um, in, out of all non-Jewish clans, of all non-Jewish nations, should have been naturally more connected with the Jewish people. And yet, God commands in the Bible, in Deuteronomy, that it is prohibited to marry an Ammonite or a Moabite, even after they convert for several generations. Why? So God explains, because they didn't greet you with bread and with water. Because when you're traveling through the desert, when you're traveling through their lands, they didn't come and greet you, they didn't give you food. And then from that, you see that how amazing food is, how important food is, that it distanced two clans that should have been close, but it distanced them because they refused to break bread with the Jewish people. And here comes the key line. And Rabbi Yochanan himself says, Food distances the near and draws near the distant. That when people eat together, when people are machnis aroke, when they bring guests into their house, people that normally should be distant from each other, it creates a bond, it creates a community. The Gemara explains what does it mean it draws near the distant? That Yisro was from, Yisro, Jethro, was from the tribe of Midian. Midian had no, no familial connection with the Jewish people. And yet, because Jethro invited Moshe, invited Moses into his house to eat, that's what caused Yisro and Yisro's whole family to become more integrated into the Jewish people, eventually converting and eventually sitting on the high court, sitting on the Sanhedrin, according to this passage in, in the Talmud. But this phrase, Gdola Legima Shemekareves, great is eating, that it brings people together, 
is something that becomes sort of a catchphrase in later rabbinic, liter in later rabbinic literature. And you could trace this down from medieval literature to, to, the, to the early modern period to contemporary times. Um, and it really, it's, it's really given real halachic, real, real ritual weight. Um, somebody mentioned before Mishloch Manot on, on Purim. So there is a whole discussion in, in the early acronym, in the, in the early, 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 in the early modern halachic decisors, whether or not on Purim you have to give food, or maybe you could give clothing, or you could give other forms of gifts. You could give some. There was one person that decided to write down his his uh, Torah, his new novel interpretations of Megillat Esther, and give it to his friend as a shalach manot. Like, why not? It's, it's a good way to get easy publicity. And this caused a whole controversy among in the, in among the rabbis in that generation whether or not you fulfill your obligation a mishloch manot in that way. And the majority of poskim assume that no, assume that you're not, you don't fulfill mishloch manot by giving on any other gift. And they cite this gemara. Rambam Yosef, the chief Sephardi rabbi, the, the chief the, the chief rabbi of Israel, passed away several years ago. Has a long response about this, and he says, no, it has to be food. Because the purpose of Mishnah Manot is to bring people together, and it's food which is uniquely suited to bring people together to create those social bonds. Um, before we get into our, our case study for today, and also the flip side of how, how food, you know, also oh, whom you don't eat with, is, is, causing, is, is creating, creating a social distance between people, there, I, I came across one source um, a while back that I feel like I have to share. Um, a, because I think it's fascinating, and B, because it just, it just goes to show how much we're missing this year, in addition to all the tragedies or the catastrophes that are taking place, um, just simple basic elements of communal life are, are, are missing. Um, in Israel, in 1991, this, this source number three is a psak din, is a halakhic ruling from Shlomo Zechavsky, who is still alive today, he's 83 years old, he sits, or he's recently retired, he sat on the head rabbinic, on the head rabbinic court in Jerusalem. The Bet Din HaGadol Shav Yerushalayim, the, the high court of, of the rabbinot in Israel. And they were, they were asked to adjudicate the following case. I'm gonna stop sharing, I'll tell you the case, and then, then we'll read to the source. And then, then we'll get to, our, to the example, to the case study that we wanna focus on today. The case was as follows. Um, in Israel, there is something called an amuta. Amuta is like a non-for-profit or organization. So each Beit Knesset, each, each synagogue community is considered, you know, builds, up, builds up an amuta for itself. You go to the bank, you go to a lawyer, you create an amuta, and then you have your own legal status. So there was an amuta, which was granted by the city of Jerusalem, a building within which to pray and they'll do whatever communal functions you wanted to do. Everything was fine and dandy for a couple of years until 1990, what happened, as, th as things often happen, particularly in Israel, a minority of this amuta, of this group, of this shul, of the synagogue community, wanted to, wanted to break away. And they wanted to create their own services. They wanted to create their own, their, they wanted to create their own Shabbos morning minion. They wanted to create a breakaway minion. And they claimed, look, we've been, we've been paying dues all, all along. We're part of this amuta. We partially own the building. Why can't we pray in one of the rooms? Why can't we have, why can't we have Shabbos morning services in one, in, 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 in one of the rooms? The way this building was set up was that there was, the, there was a main sanctuary and there was a social hall. And those were the two major rooms in, in this building. So this breakaway group claimed, why can't we pray in the social hall? Like you guys, they're, you're still the majority, you get the main sanctuary, but we wanna pray slower, we wanna pray differently, we wanna pray with, with, different, with a different nusach. So give us a social hall. Why do you need this? Why do you need the social hall anyway? You just need it for, for smachot, for kiddushes, for eating together, eating together after services. 
that pales in comparison to the power of prayer. And therefore, we should get the social hall in order to be able to pray in the, in the, way, in the way that we want to daven, in the way that we want to pray. So this case made, it, made its way all the way up through, through different appeals courts, the high court in, in Jerusalem. Um, the the chubos are fascinating. Most of them have to do with the way of the, with, uh, with the legal ownership of an amutah, how it's organized, how it votes, things of that sort. But Shlomo Tachovsky, who was a leading halachic decisor in Israel, points out that the, the breakaway group is making a fundamental mistake about how to define the purpose of a synagogue, the purpose of a Beit Knesset. I'm, I'm going to share a screen again so, so, so we can see it inside. So he writes as follows, source number three. It emerges from, from the analysis before that the needs of a synagogue should not be measured solely based on the space necessary for prayer, but also includes the space necessary for other events, such as funeral, such as funeral ceremonies. If the space remaining after dividing the building will not be sufficient for these other communal functions, the building cannot be divided. A Beit Knesset, he says, literally means, what is the literal meaning of a Beit Knesset? Knesset means assembly, coming, come, 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 coming together. The word synagogue in Greek also it means a house of assembly. It doesn't mean a house of prayer. It means a house of assembly where people come together. A synagogue is a literal translation of a Beit Knesset, which is the rabbinic word for a shul, rabbinic word for, for, for a house of prayer. So he says, if you see from there, we see from lots of other sources, that a Beit Knesset, a synagogue community, includes other functions. Next paragraph. Therefore, I do not understand the dismissive tone in the ruling of the court that the case revolves around whether or not it is preferable to use a halls for prayer or for smachot and kogel. Like, we want to daven there, we want to pray there, all you want to do is eat there. As is well known, having a kiddush after services is an integral element of the functions of a synagogue, as it serves as a vehicle for bringing hearts together. In the manner described in the Talmud, great is eating that it brings people together. He quotes our passage in the Talmud. Therefore, it is possible that preventing the Amutah from organizing a Kiddush, just eating together after services, makes the building into a space that cannot be divided. Such a fascinating idea that a Kiddush after davening is an integral part of the functioning of a shul. And therefore, you can't say, oh, you just need the social hall to eat in for a Kiddush after davening, it's not so important, no. That it's exactly what a Beit Knesset is, it's a place where people come together. They come together to pray, but they also come together to, be, to build a community. And therefore a Kiddush after davening is an integral part of a synagogue community. And, and unfortunately, I think we're all feeling that this year, that maybe some of us, maybe our, our synagogues are open, some of us are able to go to shoals, some of us probably still cannot. But one thing that, that shoals are not doing is these communal functions. I think we all feel the difference. I, guess I know I feel the difference that, um, that it's not the same going to shul just to daven and then to go home without socializing afterwards, without speaking to people afterwards, without eating together afterwards is a very different experience. And part of a bacon asset is the ability to do both, to pray together and also to eat together. Right. So we see that, that, that the sages understood the power of eating together to create social bonds. Um, any comments or questions just, just on this? Um, hi, Rabbi. I just a little bit off topic, but kind of relating to what you're saying. I read someplace, I'm not sure how things will be post-COVID, but 
in restaurants, 35% of diners are solo diners. I'm just wondering, like, what you're, whether it's kosher restaurants or whatnot. I mean, I hear what you're saying about family. I get that. But what about the restaurant industry in general and your thoughts about being a solo diner or how in many restaurants, solo diners are sort of second class. You sit at the stool or the counter and not at a table. Just kind of correlating to what you're saying. And okay, um, it's a good question. I mean, I was, I'm not a social scientist. I, I do not, and I'm, I'm definitely not judging anybody. Um, well, the only point I'm making is that when people do eat together, it often creates social bonds. If people choose to eat individually, some people don't want to have a social bond. Some people want, are introverts, they want more alone time. So, but in general, if people want to create community, breaking bread together, eating together is one way of doing that. But also it just reminds me of, there's a book, I think by, um, I think his name is Putnam. He was a, he's a sociologist at Harvard. He wrote a book called Bowling Alone. Did that bring a bell with anybody? Where I think he argued, he pointed out that in the 1990s already, um, more Americans were going bowling than ever before, but more people were bowling alone than also than ever before. And he started, he was predicting, he was both diagnosing and predicting the breakdown of social capital in, in America. We have many people have money, many people have, many people have leisure time, many people, not everybody, but money, leisure time, but they don't have the same community feeling, same social capital that, that used to exist in communities in America. That, that, that's what the book is about. So it's interesting to if the same thing correlates to the uh, to the to the to the, to the restaurant industry. So I would just meant you think restaurants should encourage would you like to sit next to this person that's also alone? Or should they just wondering how you kind of build that kind of relationship? I uh, that, that is well beyond my uh, my, 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 my my field. Um, I uh, if, if they should or shouldn't, I think that's what this that's what this organization in England is trying to do to create spaces for communal eating for people that want it but just don't have the people to eat with. Um, but people that are choosing to eat alone, I guess they should be able to eat alone. It's a free country. Um, so I assume we will, the, the ideal would be to create spaces and opportunities for it, but not necessarily force it upon people. That, that that's my that's I mean I'll just on the top, off the top of my head, that's what I would guess would be the ideal situation. Great. Um, moving on to the flip side, I mean, and then, well, then we'll look at our case study. On the flip side, I forgot who mentioned it before, that because Chazal saw the power of, power of social bonds that are created through eating together, they were also super wary of eating with from what they saw as the wrong group. Um, because more than any other activity, more than playing ball together, more than going to sports events, more than doing business together, it's eating together that creates those bonds. And therefore, somebody mentioned it before, um, feel free to shout out, shout out to give yourself credit. There's a whole slew of rabbinic decrees against eating different sorts of foods with non-Jews. There's Bishel Akum, which, which the Mishnah Navodazara talks about. You can't eat something that was cooked by a non-Jewish person. There is Stamina. You're not supposed to drink wine that was touched by a non-Jewish person. Um, there is, there, originally, there was a concept of pasakum. You're not supposed to eat bread that was baked by a non-Jewish person. The Gemara says that was too much. So according to, according to the way most people, most Orthodox Jews rule today is that, you no, know, that already was too far. You're allowed to buy bread in a bakery. But again, the way these things play out in the different, in the, in, in the, in the different, in, in, in the different Jewish denominations today is an interesting question. But at least in terms of the original sources in the Talmud itself, the same sages that realize the power of eating to create community also use that same tool to demarcate community and say, you could have 
friendly relationships with non-Jews, but you can't eat with them because that is going to cause assimilation. That is going to cause that is going to cause that is going to cause intermarriage. Um, what I want to talk about, what I want to focus on, and tonight and 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 on, on Wednesday nights, is less Jewish and Jewish non-Jewish relationship, but use that as a model for intra-Jewish. Um, intra-Jewish issues of who to eat with and who not to eat with. Because again, from a Talmudic perspective, eating with non-Jews was, 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 was an anathema um, and the sages decreed against it. But what about Jews? Are there any Jewish groups? Are there any types of Jews that the sages of the Talmud or the Jewish tradition recommends to stay away from, recommends to not eat with, to not break bread with because you do not view them as part of your community. This is a fascinating question, because on the one hand, we understand the notion of achtot, the notion of unity among the Jewish people as a whole. But on the other hand, we're also well aware that the Jewish community has always been comprised of different subgroups. Um, you have people that are more into the study of Torah, people less into the study of Torah, people are more observant, people are less observant. You have people from back in the good old days, good old days, you have people from Israel, you have people from Babylon, you had people from Persia, you had people from Ashkenazi, people from Sparta, people from all over the world. Who you eat with, and based on this notion that the sages of time would realize and in, injected within Jewish tradition that eating together creates social bonds and not eating with somebody clearly demarcates communities, can we find this idea? That, that, that people are recommending to only eat with certain types of Jews and not with others? I mean, how did different Jewish groups navigate this issue over the course of Jewish history? So what I, what I, what I wanna do is sort of like uh, skip 2000 years. Meaning I wanna tonight spend the next hour focusing on two different Jewish groups from the second temple period around the year zero, let's say, of, 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 of the common era. We'll look at the, um, we're, looking, we're going to be looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls to see how the sectarians in Qumran dealt with this question and looking at, at the Mishnah and the Talmud to see how some of the sages with more within the tradition, mainstream the tradition, looked at this question. And then we're, then we're going to be skipping 2,000 years to look at contemporary Hasidic groups and see how they navigate this question. So far so good, that's going to be, that's going to be the framework. And hopefully by doing this, we'll be able to see how different Jewish groups balanced and navigated on the one hand, wanting to retain an identity with a subgroup identity within the Jewish people, but maybe on the other hand, not severing bonds with the rest of the Jewish people, or maybe severing bonds with the rest of the Jewish people, because we really don't want to hang out with those types of Jews. Great. So I'm going to share a screen again, and I, this, this, is, this is the point where I'm going to where, where I'm going to ask people to break into chavrutas uh, to just spend maybe five minutes studying something together. Oh, sorry. Source number four is Professor David Kramer. Um, he is the head librarian of JTS. He is a, he's a, I never met him, but I, I'm definitely a student of his. His books are excellent. Scholarship is excellent in, in everything he writes about. He has a book in 2007, but Jewish eating and Jewish identity throughout the ages. And in, and in the introduction, he writes, Jewish eating is and always has been a negotiation. That is a struggle on the part of individual Jews and the community over where the boundaries of Jewish identity should be laid. And he goes through different examples of exactly this topic of different Jewish groups saying, eat with these people, don't eat with that people as a means of demarcating and creating their own identity. Um, what I would like us to do now is, is look at sources five, um, sort of look at sources five, six, and seven, or, or, or however much people want. Source number five is a passage from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Background to the background to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, 
in around the year 150 BCE, which is a little bit after the Hanukkah story, a little bit after the, um, the establishment of the, of, the, of the Hasmonean dynasty, there were some Jews that left Jerusalem, that left the mainstream Jewish communities, and moved out to a place which was later, later called Qumran, which is, which, is, which is near the Dead Sea. And they created a separate community there, which lasted, scholars think, archaeologists think, until the Great Revolt against Rome, until around the year 70 CE, when the Romans presumably came in and what came in and wiped everybody out. Unfortunately, they found Roman arrowheads among the, late, the latest dated things from, from that time period. So the assumption is when the, when the Romans came through, they, um, they, they massacred the people or took them captive. But there's a community there for several hundred years. As I'm sure many people here are aware, um, they've um, first through accident and then through like, rigorous archaeological studies, um, scholars have found the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found 900 fragments of scrolls, um, which this community kept. And these are the most ancient Jewish texts that we, that, that we have. Um, many of them are traditional texts. They, 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 found copies, they found copies of every book of the Bible there, except for the Book of Esther. The Isaiah scroll is the most famous one. It's, uh, it's on display in the, in the, in the Kiryat HaSefer in the, in, the, in the Israel Museum. Um, but some of these texts are uniquely sectarian. They don't have any sort of com comparison. Uh, they don't have any, any, any sort of parallel outside of the community. And especially because a lot of them describe the way the halachic system, the legal system of the community itself. So what we're going to be looking at is is srach hayachad, which in English is translated as as the as community rule. Basically, this is a text which is uniquely sectarian. It is unique to this group, um, and they and this srach hayachad describes the community rules. Describes you know how what are you supposed to do when you, when you wake up in the morning. It describes the laws of purity. It describes the obligations of prayer, of Torah study, of eating together, of, of things of that sort. It goes through a lot of the rules of how the community is supposed to function. And what the passage you have in front of you is a description of what's supposed to happen when somebody from the outside wants to become a member of the community. The process through which the person becomes a member of the community and the different stages of acceptance into the community. Just to note as background information, um, these people were super, super from, super stringent about laws of purity and impurity. Um, they sent a letter back to Jerusalem explaining why they had to leave Jerusalem and create their own community in the middle of the desert. And they basically explained because according to their system of law, they think all of Jerusalem and the entirety of the temple is impure, contaminated, tame, and therefore has no divine presence and no sanctity, um, and no sanctity to it. And you're going to see that in, its, uh, in, its, in, its, in this community's approach as to how they accept new members mm -hmm. of the community. Um, highlighted is going to be the part of the, the passage where it describes the rules of eating. This new initiate, is he allowed to eat in the community? Is he not, is he not allowed to eat? To, is he not allowed? Is he not allowed? Not allowed to eat? To, not, is he not allowed to eat with the community? This is this is source number five. I didn't I didn't bring in all of the Hebrew because a lot of it is a uh, is, uh, is 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 a little bit hard to read. But this is an English translation from uh, somebody who wrote a dissertation on the text on you know, studying the text of this uh, of, of of this scroll. And she has a, what I think is a very readable and very loyal to the original Hebrew translation. Afterwards, source number six. Source number six is not sectarian. Source number six is a Mishnah, 
which means that it is well within the mainstream canon of rabbinic Judaism. These are the building blocks of rabbinic Judaism of all Jewish literature that, come, that, that comes afterwards. Here, we're gonna be introduced to the concept of a chaver and an amaaretz. Amaaretz is the average person, the average, the average person. A chaver literally means a member of a chabura, of a fraternity, is somebody that is a member of a unique, an elite rabbinic fraternity. These chavirim, as we'll see, are some of the people that wrote the Mishnah. These are, you know, at least they're the heroes of the people, of the people that wrote, wrote the Mishnah. From a traditional Jewish literature perspective, these are the heroes. These are the mainstream people. What I would like us to do is compare the eating rituals in terms of who are you supposed to eat with and who not of the crazy fanatical sectarians in Qumran and of the chavirim, of the Prussian, of the Pharisees, um, that many of us, that anybody who looks at the Mishnah and is loyal to the Mishnah, um, and anybody who looks at the Mishnah as the beginning of, Jew beginning of halakhic Jewish literature, um, is going to encounter the chavirim as the ideal Jewish group. Um, compare and contrast them, see if they're similar, see if they're different, and, and hopefully after maybe five, after maybe 10 minutes, we'll come back together, we'll start analyzing it. We'll build up a case of, of how elite Chavirim were. Then we'll see that despite their eliteness, they, were, they still left avenues of interaction, which, is, which, is, which, which the sectarians did not, and why that's important for us. And God willing, we, we, God willing, we will see that as, as the night goes on. Okay. Anybody who doesn't want could stay in the main chat room and uh, we'll read through the text together. Yes, yeah, hi, yeah, hi, Yes. Hi. Good morning. I noticed one thing. I did notice that you can have the person as a, the Amaretz as a guest as long as he isn't wearing his own garments. Yes. So yes. I, I think that's significant. And it, um, I mean, we don't know if the garments might have touched something to me, or we don't know if the garments might be wool and, and pishtan, you know, linen together. So I think that's significant in that. It reminds me of the um, the walls around the Torah. Just dalif ne taomet. Know what you're doing, and don't just hang out with anyone, because you want to you want to limit your path so that you're with people who believe as you do. Right. There is something just now, which is that it kind of sounds like the rules we're following now, as in if you're taking the pandemic seriously and, and quarantining, don't hang out with people who you think probably aren't wearing their mask in public and, you know, yes. because you don't know who they've breathed near. And so who are using the same late safety precautions you are. Exactly, exactly. Okay. I think we're going to see that that's the basic difference between the sectarians in Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and, and the sages of the Mishnah. Sectarians in Qumran were like, these people are just out of the continent. They're basically not Jews anymore. And whatever, whatever rules apply to non-Jews are going to apply to them. And therefore, they're inherently impure, and you can't have anything to do with them. The sages in the Mishnah, on the surface, I mean, I'm sort of, sort of foreshadowing what we're going to see, on the surface are very similar. It's like, don't eat with an Amaris. The Amaris were 99% of the Jewish people. So like, don't eat with them. That's a crazy statement from a, from a contemporary perspective. But at the same time, they realized how fanatical it sounded and they realized the collateral damage and therefore they made they they made as many leeways as possible within a within the framework of keeping themselves safe so it's almost like you know if you, it's almost like uh, the sectarians were like they're two teams and you can't eat with somebody from the other team because they're inherently bad 
as opposed to the sages of the Mishnah, which I think Julie, I think, I think, I think, I think you're, I think you're, you're correct with the, you're correct and apt with the, um, with the, with the analogy to the COVID restrictions. That we want to, you want to be able to eat with everybody, but you also want to be able to keep yourself safe. So how do we balance those two values? And therefore, you're going to find a lot more exceptions, um, many more exceptions than you're going to find in the sectarians. Um, and that, 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 and hopefully, we'll see that over the course of the next forty minutes or so in the sources themselves. But yeah, but it's a uh, Rabbi uh, Bronstein. Could you comment more about the clothing? Yes, yes. So, so the there is a particular there, there is a particular rabbinic rabbinic decree that for people who enter this fraternity of the chavirim of the, the elite elite rabbis of the Pharisees, um, that clothing of non rabbis was considered ritually impure, um, but not the persons, just the clothing. Why does that make any sense? Again, because you want to create boundaries, but you also want to want to, want to make those, those boundaries porous. So you create a boundary by saying they can't come in their clothing, but as long as they're not, as long as they're coming to you, you're not going to them. And as long as they're wearing different clothing, so like there's something different about this meal to remind you that you're not eating with like with a rabbinic elite, you're eating with, a, with the average person. So then such meals are going to be condoned, basically. So, so yeah, so it's a, it's a way of balance, of balancing these two values, as, as, as we'll see. The value of creating an elite community of, of, of like-minded people in terms of a certain, type, certain intensity and focus in the service of God, while at the same time, re retaining some level of social interaction with the rest of the Jewish people. And that's why the, the, the Gezira focused on the clothing, not on the people themselves. Yeah, but reading the reading the Tzitzit scrolls is a lot of fun because for a student of rabbinic literature, it's like this is so similar. The language is so similar. The methodology of thought is so similar. The hermeneutics are similar, but it's like so foreign at the same time. Um, like I, I I teach now. I, I live in Israel and I teach in Israel. And every year that I, since I made Aliyah, except for this year, I brought my students to the Israel Museum to look at the look at the Tzitzit scrolls. The students I study I study rabbinic I study rabbinic literature with. But it's like this group is so similar to us, but at the same time so foreign, and you're living in the same place two thousand years ago, like trying to do their own thing, uh, which is like fascinating. Great. So, so the um, so the, the so the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, a very very lovely group that I'm sure everybody would love. Everybody, 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 everybody would lo would love to hang out with. Um, their rules of initiating people into their rules of who to eat with and not to eat with is in the context of initiating people into the community. And as was mentioned, if somebody wants, just wants to shout it out, um, what do they think of the rest of the Jewish people? If you know, just highlight the point, you shall separate from the congregation of the people of falsehood. Everybody else is false. Everybody else, the people of falsehood, they are worthless, as we'll see. They are outside the covenant. They're outside the Brit with Hashem. With God, how do we know the sectarians thought that the rest of the Jewish people, those in Jerusalem, 99% of the Jewish of the Jewish people were outside the covenant? Because when you come into their group, what do you have to do? You have to undertake a covenant. You have to reenact the Brits with Hashem. They reenacted Har Sinai for those people that joined the group. Because everybody else is just doing random things. You're doing the wrong thing. You're not part of the covenant anymore. If you want to, if you want to con connect with the true people of the covenant, you have to re-enter the Greeks with Hashem, do exactly what the Jewish people did as a, as a whole at, at Sinai. 
And then this notion of reenacting the covenant is all over this book. Every year they reenacted their own covenant. They had a reenaction of Harsinai. On Shavuot, we don't reenact Harsinai. We just, we, just, we, just, we just sort of study, we just sort of, we just sort of study Torah. They tried to reenact Sinai as much as possible because they were convinced that they had the breeds with Hashem, they had the covenant with Hashem and, and nobody else. So that's 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 the introduction to this chapter, um, to this fifth column in the in the scroll on page three. When we move on to the next page, we see the practical ramifications of this. He he refers to the person that is the initiate, the person that wants to enter the community, is already living in Qumran, but you're not fully part of the group yet. He must not enter the water in order to touch the purity of the men of holiness. The tarot is a is a is a is a code word for food, the, the pure food. What does entering the water refer to? Immersing in the mikvah. Before the sectarians, before these people in Qumran, the authors of the three scrolls touched food. They went to the mikvah. They went to the mikvah obsessively. Um, they were super super into going to the mikvah. But this new initiate, even though he took the oath, he entered the covenant. He's in the process of becoming part of the group. He cannot touch the community's food. He asks, he has to eat separately. For they cannot be cleansed unless they turn away from their wickedness. For he remains impure among all those who transgress his, meaning God's words. And up until the later on in the scroll, it says it takes a year. After one year of living in Qumran, then you're able to touch the community's food. No one may be united with him in his duty or his property, lest he burden him with his guilty iniquity. We shall keep far away from him in everything. For thus it is written, for thus it is written keep far away from everything false. Mitzvah sheker tirchak. According to our interpretation, according to the interpretation of the Mishnah and the Talmud, that refers to lying. Mitzvah sheker tirchak means don't lie, don't lie in court in particular. According to the sectarians, mitzvah sheker tirchak, stay away from falsehood, means stay away from the people of falsehood, stay away from all other Jews because they are no longer part of the covenant of God. Good. So you read this. I remember, I remember my first time reading this in, in graduate school. It's like, whatever, these are the crazy sectarians. This is why they, this is why they lived in Qumran by themselves. And this is why they created a self-sufficient community. And this is reflected all throughout their literature that they really saw the world in, in dualistic terms. There was them, the B'nai or the children of light, Everybody else was Bnei Hachoshef, the children of darkness, and they, they, um, they, 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 their texts keep on predicting some type of apocalyptic battle between the children of light and the children of darkness. And obviously, they're going, they're going to come out, they're going to come out on top, and they're going to be the ones who, who uh, recreate the world in, in their, in their own vision, like a real, real fanatical cult. Good. But then, you start thinking, it's not just the sectarians. It's actually the heroes of the Mishnah, the heroes of the Jewish tradition. I was in rabbinical school when I first started thinking about this. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm spending my entire day studying texts written by the Mishnah and the Talmud. And what do these texts represent? The same type of elitism that you find in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Look in the Mishnah and Demai. One who takes upon himself to become a chaver, a chaver, again, a member of this elite group, may not, one, Sell to an amaris, either moist or dry produce, because you cannot, because then you're, you're going to create pure food and make it impure. You may not buy from them moist produce, because moist, they're, they're, it's moist produce is more, more susceptible, more susceptible to, to ritual impurity. Nor may he be the guest of an amaris. You can't 
eat in the house of an Amaret. Normally, host an Amaret as a guest, while the Amaret is wearing his own garment. You can't, you can't invite an Amaret over as long as the Amaret is wearing, wearing his own clothing. So in all intents and purposes, think about what this means. Um, you have an average Jewish family living around the turn of the millennium, the same time Jesus was born, around the year zero. Amazing. They send their kid off to yeshiva to learn. They send their daughter, there's no, there was no major show back then. So the, 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 the daughters were less of an issue. Um, they send their son off to yeshiva to study. They send the son off to yeshiva to learn. Their son gets inspired. He becomes a Pharisee, becomes a Tamachakam, becomes a Torah scholar, becomes a rabbi. He joins his group of Chavirim. He is now a Chavir, he's now a member of this fraternity. What could he not do? He can't go home to eat with you. You, you can't eat in your parents' house if you're a Chavir and they're Amayarets. That is apparently, that was within the ethos of the sages of the Mishnah. Um, and again, on the surface, it's a stringency in the laws of some of its hours, a stringency in the, in the, in the laws of, 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 of purity and ritual purity and, and, rich, and ritual, ritual impurity. But the social, the social effect, the collateral damage is pretty, pretty astounding. Um, and this group of Chavirim, again, it's not just the fact that, you know, they, they, that they, they, they can't eat together. It has all the strappings of like a really, really elite group, a real, a real cult. I mean, the sources eight and nine just, um, sources, sources, eight, sources eight, and, eight, eight and nine are more sources which talk about the differences, ritual purity between the Amaretz and the Chaver, the average person in this elite group. But if you look at source number 10, how do you become a Chaver? It's not just a meritocracy, you have to be accepted by a tribunal of Chavirin. It's like a real fraternity. The sage is taught in a Ebrezza. One who comes to accept upon himself a commitment to observe the matters associated with Chavir status must accept it in the presence of Chavirin. You have to sit in front of a tribunal and be accepted into this elite group. Even a Torah scholar who wishes to become a Chavir must accept the status of Chavir in the presence of three Chavirim. Doesn't matter, you could be the greatest Torah sage in the, in the country, but you have to be accepted by this Chabura, by this group, if you want to attain this high ritual status. It sounds like a really elite, elite group which look down upon the masses, which look down upon their families, which look down upon the which look down upon the rest of the Jewish people. And again, it's 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 similar to the Dead Sea Scrolls, source number 11. How long does it take to, to, to accept the Khmer? It's not an immediate process. It takes time. It takes 30 days, it takes 12 months. Beitil says it takes 30 days. Rav Shaul Lieberman, Dr. Saul Lieberman, um, the author of Tessetta Kapshuta, one of the greatest Talmudic scholars in the 20th century, has like six or seven parallels between this group of Chavirim that we find in the Mishnah and the crazy fanaticals of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it just causes one to wonder, what about the ethos of Achtos? What about the ethos of unity, of you no know, fraternity, of fraternity among the, all the Jewish community? About you no know, bringing people together. Why, where, what happened to all of that? Um, in it seems like in their desire for elite spiritual status, they were fine with like creating really hard lines and saying we're not going to eat the same way we don't eat together with non-Jews. We're not going to eat together with the average Jewish person. So what do we think about that? That's basically going to be our question for the, for the next half an hour. Is that really true? So what do you think?
just just as a question, um, I understand the motivation for the sectarians to say uh, we're going to keep ourselves different because they don't think that all the other people are doing Judaism right. But the Mishnah allows for a Torah scholar to exist who's not a Haver. So what's the motivation to become a Haver? Good. Exactly. Exactly. That, that is a great question. Thank you. I didn't catch who was asking. Who was, who was, who was commenting? Jonathan? Um, yeah, that was me. Yeah. Jonathan, thank you. Um, and that is, the, that is exactly the, the purpose of the next source. If you, if I'm going to share a screen again, look at the next source. The next source is the Rambam. The, this Rambam is, uh, the Rambam is, is, own, is writing a thousand years or so after the Chavirim, but historians think that basically he's 100% correct. Um, you look at the, the end of the Rambam and the end of the laws of, of Tumavatara. He says, it is permitted to eat impure foods. Halakhically speaking, there is nothing wrong with being ritually impure. But the pious men of earlier generations would partake their ordinary food in a state of ritual purity. They are called the Prushim. Prushim are the Pharisees. But what does the word parush literally mean? Separate. Who would the Prushim separate themselves from? This is an extreme measure of holiness and a path to piety, to be separate from people at large, to hold oneself apart from them, not to touch them, not to eat or drink with them. For setting oneself apart leads to the purification of the, of the body from wicked actions. Purifying one's body leads to sanctifying one's soul and from wicked character traits. And that causes one to resemble God. What's going on? You're allowed to be a tamahakam if you're not a chaver, but the vast majority of non-chavirim were ame aretz. Ame aretz are law-abiding Jews, but they don't have the same intensity in terms of their single-minded focus on God as everybody else. They'll go to sports games, they'll hang out, they'll, 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 they'll do whatever, they'll spend time reading novels, reading newspapers, whatever it is. They'll do whatever the average person does. According to the Rambam, what is the purpose of the chavirim, of the prushim, when they separate from the ame aretz? It's to create an unlike-minded community of spiritual growth, to create an elite spiritual class. And the only way to do that is to not eat with Amaya Aretz. It's to not eat with the average person. Um, so yeah, so it's a fascinating thing. The Rambam seems to be, seems to be all go with this, that yes, that there is a value in not breaking bread with the average Jewish person. If you are of an elite Jewish you know, rabbinic class, because you're gonna to have to dilute your level of intensity. You want to talk Torah at, at the Shabbos table. You want to talk about the parsha. You want to talk about the intricacies, intricacies of Jewish law. The rest of your family wants to talk politics. You don't care about that. You don't want to. You, you meaning you, 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 you would rather you, you think you, you think that's a waste of time. And therefore, the solution of the Kabirim was simply to not eat with Amiharitz. And the question is going to be like, what do we think about that? Um, how are we to reconcile the fact that these people, or so to speak, are the original heroes of, of the Jewish halachic tradition? Maybe, maybe we're not okay with it. Hopefully on Wednesday, next session, we'll see the Hasidic approach to this. And we'll see the Hasidim sort of turning all of this on its head, because they're, they're all into Jewish unity and fraternity and bringing people together and inclusivity, and et cetera, et cetera. But now we're just focusing on rabbinic literature itself, the Jews from the year zero CE. How did they, for themselves, reconcile this type of approach to the Amiharis? Can I make a comment? Yeah, for sure. 
Um, this sounds like monks. I mean, we, when you talked about, you know, total devotion to God, that's what came to mind. Good. So the sectarians were often compared to monks. The early, the Christian scholars of the Dead Sea Scrolls were looking for pro, proto-Christian ideas, and they found some of them among Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is an ascetic lifestyle that becomes similar, that prefigures Christian monks. But that's exactly, that's exactly going to be the key difference. Because the Prushim, the Pharisees, the Chavirim, um, they were not. The, Josephus tells us that, that, that they actually had the loyalty of the Jewish masses. The Jewish masses did not let the Hasmonean kings turn away from the Pharisees because the, the Jewish masses were on the side of the Pharisees. They were beloved by the people, according to, at, least according to, at least according to Josephus. The question is why, if they were so elitist? And the answer is going to be that yes, there was some animosity, and we see that in the sources themselves, but at the same time, they created a framework that even as they felt for their own spiritual longings and aspirations, they had to eat separately, those boundaries were porous. The sectarians did not consider everybody else to be part of the Jewish people anymore. They were no longer part of Amcha, and therefore you, they're totally impure. The, 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 the Pharisees, the Prussian, the Chavirim, from their perspective, they were separating for the sake of a certain type of spiritual aspiration, but they still recognized the value of Jewish community. Therefore, as high as they made these boundaries, they made them porous. There are exceptions. And they, those exceptions get celebrated and get encouraged in order to keep that connection alive, despite the fact that they wanted to create their own sub-community. And that's the, that's the, the complicated way that they, that, they navigated, that, they, that, they, that they navigated this issue. Um, so, so, so let's see that inside. Um, it just if you're if you're interested, um, the sorry, let's 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 skip sources thirteen and thir, thir, skip skip source number thirteen for a second. Source number fourteen um, is rabbinic testimony to the hatred that some Amharites had for these rabbis. As you might imagine, it was natural; it would have been there. Again, this source is from Talmud Bavli. It's much later. It's unclear whether or not it's, it's, it's actually representing the history of uh, the true accurate history of, of the Second Temple of Judaism. But at least the notion is there in rabbinic literature. It was taught. Let's look at source number 14. Rabbi Akiva said, when I was an Amharis, right, according to Talmud Bavli, Rabbi Akiva, the greatest sage, started off his life as an ignoramus and then later on, studied, went, later on began to study when he was in his 40s. Abikiva says, when I was an Amaharis, and I was the average person, which was a simple shepherd, I said, would that I had a Torah sage before me, I would bite him like a donkey. Right? Violence. I would, I would love to have one of the people in front of me, I want to bite them. His students asked him, Master, see, rather like a dog, why a donkey? Like, it's a very strange animal to say that I want to bite a rabbi like a donkey. He answered them, the former bites and breaks a bone. The latter bites, but does not break a bone. A donkey bites and breaks a bone. A dog doesn't bite as deep. I hated Torah scholars, these chaveirim, to the extent that I wanted to bite them and bring, and, and I wanted to bite them like a donkey and break their bones. There certainly is some level of animosity there. But at the same time, um, the, these boundaries are porous and it created a framework for keeping the Jewish people as a single, as a, as, as a, as a unified whole. Um, and as we're going to see, there are, there are three different ways which I want to highlight in the next 20 minutes um, that the Pharisees use to create porousness, create holes in these boundaries 
to allow there to be social bonding with Ami Haaretz, despite this, this Isser, despite this prohibition against eating with the average Jew. The first one is regarding, again, regarding the laws of the Beit HaMikdash. That the, the Talmud in Tractin Chagiga tells us that even though a Chaver cannot eat with an Ama Aretz, and even though a Chaver cannot trust an Ama Aretz for the laws of Tremot and Israel, for tithes, for Kashrut, if the Ama Aretz brings a sacrifice to the Beit HaMikdash, the Amma Aretz brings wine or oil and donates it to the Beit HaMikdash, that's assumed to be pure. And the Gemara, the, the Gemara is like, why? This doesn't make any sense. You can't eat with an Amma Aretz because he's assumed to be impure and all of his feet is impure. But in the Beit HaMikdash, which, is, which requires the highest level of sanctity and the highest level of purity, you're gonna trust the Amma Aretz to tell you that this is pure. The Gemara, so the Gemara says as follows. It is taught in the Breitza, Abiyosi said, for what reason are all people, even Amei Aretz, trusted with regard to the purity of their wine and oil that they bring to the temple for sacrificial purposes throughout the year? Why do we trust them in the Beit HaMikdash if we don't trust them at their kitchen, at their dining room table? The Gemara explains, in order to avoid schisms among the people, so that each and every individual should not go off and build a private altar for himself and burn a red heifer for himself. What would happen if the sages in charge of the Beit HaMikdash would say, Amayaretz, you can't bring sacrifices, you can't bring wine and oil, because we assume what you're bringing is impure? That would create an irrevocable schism in the Jewish people. That would basically be the same as, as, as the sectarians in Qumran that you cannot be part of our ritual service at all one iota. And in order to avoid that, in order to avoid this ultimate schism, the sages said something which on a surface is counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense because they are trusting the Amiya Aras about purity regarding the Beit HaMikdash, even though they're not trusting them about purity in their own kitchen tables. Why? Because they realize the collateral damage. They realize the social effect of a total breakage, of total lack of trust of, of Amiyaretz. And he said that in Dafka, specifically in the most sensitive place, which is the Beit HaMikdash, that is where we're gonna trust them. Because otherwise we would create, an, that we would create two irrevocably separate groups in the Jewish people. So, um, and, and, and we're gonna see that, you know, I think these things could, could be models for us within our, within our I, I really, I really do, not, do not know many people on the, on the, on the Zoom call, uh, but it, within our own groups and subgroups in, in the Jewish community, it's just important to realize that, yes, if we do, we all have our own identities, we all have our own communities, but sometimes you have to sacrifice a lot in order to show that your community is not off limits to other Jews, to, to the rest of the Jewish people. And the sages of the Mishnah did exactly that by sacrificing, so to speak, the purity of the Beit HaMikdash in order to allow for all people to worship in the same location, in the same place. So that is one element that the, that the, um, that, that the sages of the Mishnah instituted. Source number 17, a second element. The wife, this is a Mishnah in Gittin. Again, it's a totally random Mishnah. It's disconnected from the Mishnah before and disconnected from the Mishnah afterwards. The wife of a Chaver 
may lend to the wife of an Amaaretz a fan or a sieve, and may, may winnow and grind the sift with her. What's the case in the Mishnah? You have two neighbors. You have a chaver and Amaaretz. And the, the chaver, sorry, the, the Amaaretz, and the Amaaretz, more particularly, again, the Mishnah is very gendered. It's assuming it's, it's the wife who is the, going to be the one who is, who is bake, who's baking the bread. She doesn't have a sifter. She wants to sift her flour. So she says she invites her friend, the wife of the chaver, over. And you're allowed to let the wife of the chaver is allowed to lend her the sifter, is allowed to even sit with her and help her up until a point. But when she has poured water over the flower, she should not touch anything with her because we do not assist those who commit a transgression. Once the water touches the flower, at that point, the flower is susceptible to tumma. And it, it, you have to take away challah, you have to, you have to make some of, the, some of this bread into, into something which is kadosh, and therefore you don't want to be part of contaminating this challah. But up until that point, you're allowed to lend your utensils, and you're even allowed to sift together and grind the things together with the wife of the Amaharit. Last line of the Mishnah, all of these rules were only said because of the ways of peace. So what do we see from this Mishnah about the social interactions between the Ame Aretz and the Chavirim? Any takers? I have a question first. Yeah, How could anyone, what are the criteria for becoming a wife or a, of, a, of a Chavir? Because if the criterion for a Chavir is all this Talmud study and women couldn't do it, like how do you become a wife of the quote unquote monk? That is a great question. Um, and the Tosefta actually deals with it directly. And the answer is as, as long as, again, this is the straight out of straight out of the rabbinic, rabbinic sources, that as long as the, the woman um, agrees to take on the extra stringencies of ritual purity of the chaver, then she becomes an ishet chaver, and she becomes trusted in the community, even though she doesn't have the she, she doesn't have the the, um, the level of knowledge. So that's the it's a, it's a matter of matter of acceptance again. It's a matter of acceptance into the into the fraternity, as opposed to actual level of knowledge, and agreeing to the strictures of the community. So that's that, that that's the way you become an ishat chaver in the in in, in mishnayik law. Um, but what do you see about the chaverim and ami haaretz? Where where were they living? They were next door neighbors. They were living on top of each other, and also they were friendly. The wife of the ami haaretz felt comfortable going knocking on her neighbor's door and saying, I, I don't have a sifter, I don't have flour, can you lend them to me, please? And can you also sift with me and, you know, and grind the grain with me and start the process with me? And the Mishnah allows for that social interaction. Mishnah allows for the wife of the Chaver to partake in the bread-making process up until a point. Why? Because of the ways of peace. So you see a couple of things from this Mishnah. Number one, you see, they were, they, they were living as next door neighbors to each other during this time period. As opposed to the sectarians, in order to keep, their, to keep their level of purity, they moved out to the desert and created a secluded community and made it, they, and said, you, if you want to live with us, you have to be accepted into our group. The, the Chavirim never created a, a designated communal living space. They lived among the people. 
And they were friends with the people. They were neighbors of the people. And people felt comfortable coming over to them and knocking on their door and asking for, for, asking for flour and asking for help. They set boundaries. You cannot actually be part of the process in which the challah is going to become ritually impure. There are boundaries involved. But up until that point, it's allowed and it's even encouraged. Because of the ways of peace. And you can see this all throughout the Mishnah. The Chavirim, despite the fact that they were, again, Prushim, they were Pharisees, Prushim meaning they separated themselves, the ferocious separate from the Amayarets, they separated in terms of their eating spaces, but they didn't separate in terms of their living spaces. They lived in the community itself, embedded within the larger Jewish community, and the social interactions were strong, they were deep, and they were friendly as much as possible, even though they couldn't eat together. So, so one difference between the Chavirim, so the first difference between the Chavirim and, and the Chavirim and the sectarians is that the Chavirim allowed for a certain level of trust of the Amearits in the Beit Hamikdash, so to speak, in our in the in the, in the synagogue, in the, the house of worship, um, in order to avoid schisms, as opposed to the sectarians that did not allow anything, and also the Chavirim. Uh, the, the Chavirim intentionally lived amongst the Jewish community, despite keeping, despite having separate eating spaces, they kept the social bonds alive by living on the same streets, the same blocks, the next door neighbors of the average Jewish person, of the Amiyarets. Great. So far, so good. Any, any comments or questions? Great. One final point. And I think that this is the uh, that this that this is the most important point to keep the most important point to keep to keep in mind. Um, the the Gemara tells us that for the vast majority of the year, the Chavirim would not eat with the Amayarets. Again, that proverbial son that went off to yeshiva and became inspired, became a Chaver, would not be allowed to go home and eat in his parents' home. He'd be allowed to sleep there. He'd be allowed to play games there or do whatever they do in the home, but he wouldn't be allowed to eat there. He would have to eat it outside. He would have to have his own designated eating space. However, there was, there was one time, or more particularly three times throughout the year, when all Jews were able to eat together, when all of these rules were, were waived. Anybody want to take a guess? When were all of these rules waived? The Mishnah tells us during a Chag, during a holiday. On Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, when the Jews were supposed to make pilgrimages up to Yerushalayim, then families were allowed to eat together. Um, there, were no, there were no distinctions between the Chaver and the Amharits. The good source number 18, the Mishnah and Chagiga points this out. And in Jerusalem, all people, even Amharits, are deemed credible with regard to sacrificial food. That's what we just saw. That we trust the Amaaris that his that his that his oil and his wine is tahar. And during a pilgrimage festival, they are deemed credible even with regard to truma. All the food of an Amaaris is considered tahar, even the even the food which you would which you would be most concerned should be that about is becoming tamay. All food of Amaaris is considered ritually pure and able to be eaten by a chaver during a holiday festival. And then the mission, the mission goes on to explain, and then the, the, the mission goes, goes on to, goes on to, goes on to, de to detail this more. How do we know this? What's the source for this? The Gemara has a very cute phrase, a very, very cute drasha. 
that there is a there's a there's a verse in Judges, it was a Pasuk in Sefer Shoktim, that says when all Jews come together, call Yisrael Chavirim. All Jews are Chavirim. So what is the the, 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 the the original biblical meaning of the phrase, Kol Yisrael Chavirim, is that all Jews are together, they're all united. But once the word Chavir took on this valence of a member of this elite fraternity, how did the Chazal, how did the sages of the Talmud interpret this, interpret this verse, Kol Yisrael Chavirim? That on a, on, a, on a festival, on a holiday, when people come together, call Yisrael Chavirim, all Jews attain the high status of Chavirim. All Jews are considered ritually pure, even though we know that they are, that, that they are not, even though we know that they're not keeping themselves pure, they may not necessarily have gone to the mikvah, that they're, they, they're not necessarily separating themselves from corpses and dead animals and all these things. Nonetheless, on a holiday, call Yisrael Chavirim, all Jews are elevated to the status of a chaver. Now, in Ashkenazi, in Ashkenazi, in Ashkenazi Siddur, in our, in, in our, in our, in our prayer liturgy, um, when we bless the new month, when we do Birkat HaChodesh, there is a phrase there at the end um, that we say, Kol Yisrael Chavirim. All Jews are all Jews are Chavirim. So the simple meaning is that when we know this month, and especially this month should be a month of redemption, all Jews should be united, all Jews should be friends. The origin of that phrase is a you know, it's double entendre. Yes, call yourself Chavirim, all Jews are united, but also all Jews should attain a high spiritual state. All Jews should be elevated to the status of a Chavir, and all Jews should become friends and united and a part of, part of, part of the same group as Chavirim. And again, the, the actual derivation, the actual biblical derivation for this is a, is a major stretch. That is not what the word chavirim means in the actual verse. There were no chavirim, there's no chabura, there's no this elite spiritual group during biblical times. Um, and it's clearly that this is not the source. Clearly, Chazal just thought it was important that on a holiday, people should be able to eat together. Um, and I think this, you know, this, this last source, this last source really, really brings it home. Um, the the Maritzchios, who is a 19th century commentary on the Gemara, says that why on a holiday were the Chavirim allowed to eat with an Amaretz? Because that is the whole purpose of a holiday. Look at source number 20, the last source on the page. The Rambam writes in his Guide to the Perplex, other holidays are appointed for rejoicing and for such pleasant gathering as people generally need. They also promote the good feeling that men should have with each other in their social and political relations. The Ramam says that in addition to the, the, to the historical reasons for holidays, and in addition to the religious and spiritual reasons for holidays, one of the purposes of a holiday is to literally bring people together. The, the verses in the Bible themselves emphasize this. On a holiday, you can't eat alone. Again, the carbon Pesach and a Chabura, the same word Chabura, is, is, the, is, the, um, is, the, is the paradigm of this. On a holiday, you're supposed to eat with your family. On a holiday, you're supposed to invite those that don't have family over. You're supposed to invite the convert, invite the foreigner, invite the stranger, invite the orphan, invite the widow, invite the widower. The, the psukim are very clear about this. Nobody should be eating alone on a holiday. Again, one of the tragedies of the COVID era is that unfortunately there's so many people, so many people, so many people, so many people eat, eating alone on over again. The Rambam says this is a fundamental purpose of the holidays of bringing people together. 
And the Marat Schios, the source says, that is exactly why on a holiday, it was crucial for all Jews to be able to eat together. And this is similar to which our sages write in the Talmud, great is food that it draws near the distant, it draws people together. The Ami Aretz and the Chavirim were distant from each other throughout the year. They couldn't eat together throughout the year because the Chavirim had high spiritual aspirations. And they thought that eating with an Ami Aretz, creating that level of social bonding with Ami Aretz would hurt their intensity, would hurt their focus, would hurt their Torah study. Fine, so we give them the leeway to create their own subgroup as long as they're living among the Jew, living among everybody else. Um, and as, um, as, long as, 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 as long as they're living among everybody else, as long as we trust them to be to Makdash. But also, you, you can't create your subgroup on a holiday because the whole purpose of a Chag is to bring people together. And that would be the opposite if the Ame Aretz and the Chavirim were not allowed to eat together. And the opposite is also true, the Maritzkiya says. That refraining from eating with fellow Jews creates great, great divisiveness. And this is particularly the case when it stems from a lack of trust regarding tithes and purity. It is not for naught that Rabbi Akiva said that when he was an Ama Arantz, he would have bitten a Torah scholar like a donkey. It created real animosity um, when, uh, when the Chavirim refused to eat with the Ama Arantz. The main purpose of the holiday pilgrimages was to unite the hearts of the Jewish people to each other. This goal would not have been met if they would, if they would trust each other, if they would not trust each other regarding purity. The sages realized that they needed to remove the impediments from eating together, such that the satan should not come and dance amongst them on the holidays and cause hatred and divisiveness. Therefore, they declare that all Jews are considered a chavirim on a holiday, and therefore all Jews can eat together. And here you see like the delicate balance that the chavirim were trying to strike. Yes, subgroups are important. Like-minded subgroups are very important. Ideological value-based communities are very important. But don't forget your connection to the rest of the Jewish people. Number one, um, trust them in the house of worship. Trust them in the Beit HaMikdash. Number two, live as their neighbors and make sure you have friendly relationships, even as you're not eating together. And number three, on a holiday, make sure those boundaries are broken and you're able to eat together as a family and eat together as a community. And this way, the Chavirim are able to balance their desire for high spiritual aspirations and creating a community of people as such, and also their connection to the rest of the Jewish people, suppose the sectarians that fell off the deep end and considered everybody else no longer part of the uh, no longer part of part of the Jewish people. And as we go on, next 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 time we meet, I want, I want to take comments and questions in the last two minutes. But next time we meet, we'll see how the how the Hasidim, the Hasidic groups, had a very different ethos about the value of unity and how, for them, the balance between creating a like-minded community. On the one hand, and inclusivity on the other hand was very, they created a very, very different balance and that they navigated this issue in a very, very different way. Um, if anybody has any comments or questions in the last couple of minutes, I would, I would love to hear. I saw there was one, there was one question in the chat. I didn't get a chance to read it. Um, would a wedding, a Brit's, me, Brit's meal of reconciliation be considered a holiday? Um, that is a fascinating question. 
um, would a would other things other than the actual holidays? So as far as I'm aware, the answer the answer is no. The, the only leeway the Mishnah gives is the holidays themselves. The Talmud Yerushalmi actually says, "What's the source of this?" That the that the the the, the, the that David Hamelach in Psalms refers to Jerusalem as Ir Shechubra La Yachtav, as a city that's united. Again, the original Pshat the puzzle. What does it mean? Jerusalem is united. It means that David Melech, no, he he's, he had one he, part of Jerusalem was on one mountain, the temple was on another mountain, and the city became united um, in in his era. But the Talmud Yerushalmi says, what does it mean? The city is united. It means the city unites people. That when all Jews are in Jerusalem on a pilgrimage on a holiday, that's what creates this bond. So at least according to the Talmud Yerushalmi. I mean, having your shalim in the mix is certain is a is is a, is, an, is is an important ingredient. Um, but I honestly do not know any sources that address a brit milah or a wedding directly. Um, any other any other final any other final any other final comments, questions, or thoughts? If not, um, thank you so much. I really appreciate our, our our ability to come together and to learn about this. And I think the, the lessons for us is, again, that as much as we want to create our subgroups and ideologically minded subgroups, it's important to keep the, the walls and the boundaries and the borders there, but porous at the same time in order to not hurt the unity of the Jewish people, of the Jewish people as a whole. And God willing, next class, we'll see how the Hasidim navigated this issue and how they were very, how they, were, they created a very different balance between their spiritual aspirations and their desire for achdot and inclusivity, um, and we'll see how those how those two things how those how those two things come together. Amazing! Thank you so much, Evie. Thank you again. Thank you everybody for coming for coming here and, and, and learning together. And um, God willing, we'll, 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 whoever wants to come back on Wednesday, I will see people on Wednesday. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank There's you. This class. was great. I highly recommend other, other classes in the Jerusha Winters Month. Whatever my kids are currently home from school because of you know quarantine issues and uh, and lockdown issues. But whatever I'm able to log into, I've been following, and they're really, really phenomenal. Up until now, I have no reason to assume the rest of the classes will be will be any less. So I really recommend trying to log into as many classes as possible. Thank you so much.